Great. We're going to turn to um, the Bible and to John's Gospel and John chapter 8. The uh, words will be on the screen, but it may be that um, if you've got a Bible, why not turn it up or a phone, um, look it up on there. Be useful to have it open in front of you. Um, just while you're looking for that, um, we also thank God for Claire, uh, who is the other member of the student team. Um, and so we, we thank God for Claire too. Um, terrific. So John chapter 8. Um, and we, we're coming to the end of this section of John chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. And if you've been here for the last few weeks, you'll know that... that, that they're chapters where the intensity of opposition has been growing. And as the opposition to Jesus has been growing, the, there's been an increasing clarity around what Jesus is actually saying and, and making these claims. And I think as we get to the end of chapter 8, things become very sharply in focus. So if you kind of wonder, well, what is it all about Jesus? What, what is it that Jesus is really all about? I think this afternoon we're going to see two statements that sum up everything that is all, uh, about Jesus. So look out for those as I read it. Um, John chapter 8, verse 48 to 58. And let's hear God's word to us. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this, they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his words. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Let's pray, and let's ask for God's help. Father, we please would you help us now, by your Spirit, we pray that this word, this word that your Holy Spirit inspired would be a word of life to us. Lord, please make your word live. Please give us soft hearts and willing minds to obey what we hear. Lord, speak, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So all sorts of themes have been swirling around in John chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. And there have been themes that have come back again and again, repeated ideas that we've sort of enjoyed over the last few weeks. We've chewed on them, we've meditated on them, we've thought about them, but then they're sort of gone again and they're, they're all swirling around. It's been quite difficult sometimes to grasp exactly what's happening. There have been whispers of freedom, of light. 
there's been talk of thirst-quenching joy or whispers of belonging to a family. There's been talk of a father and a son. And it's almost tantalizing, these themes that they're so big and so rich. But they're pressing on to us. That This urgency of these themes, these are things that matter. These are not little, trifly little things that don't matter. These are things that are so urgently important that cannot be ignored. And as the intensity of opposition to Jesus has increased, so these truths have sharpened. And at the end of John chapter 8, I want to suggest that they come down to two main themes, two statements, which the whole of this message of Jesus really hangs on. And you can tell they're important statements because they start with the words... Very truly, I tell you. Twice Jesus says that. In the old translations, it was, Verily, verily, I say unto you. That's good, isn't it? I challenge you over dinner to say to someone, Verily, verily, I say unto you. But the, our translation makes it slightly more modern. Truly, I say to you. That is, Jesus is underlining something. This is important. This is something that you must listen to. This is something weighty. And you get two of them in this section. And we're going to take these two statements and we're going to enjoy them and we're going to explore them and we're going to dig into them and then we're going to take them home with us and we're going to ask that they would live in our hearts and change us. The first statement comes in verse 51. Do you see it? Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. There's his claim. Whoever obeys my words will never see death. The second statement comes in verse 58. Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. The first statement tells us about the work Jesus came to do. The second statement tells us about the identity, who Jesus truly is. And between these two statements is life. This is the gospel. So let's listen to these. And I want to challenge you to get these into your head and into your heart. Take them home with you because you are going to need these two statements in your life. You need these. So let's look at the first one. Uh, Whoever obeys my word will never see death. Now, this is not a new idea in John's Gospel. This theme of life and death has already been swirling around. It's been one of the the themes that's been there in the background. Right back in chapter 1, we were told that Jesus in him was light, and that light was the life of man. In chapter 3, we're told that to believe in Jesus means you cross over from death to life. This theme of death has already been a theme in John's gospel. And Jesus says, whoever obeys my word will never see death. I love this about Jesus. He deals with the biggest issues. He doesn't deal with small things. He deals with the biggest of all issues. You see, death is the great enemy of humanity. It stalks us. 
It hangs over us. It is like an ever-present shadow that casts its fearful darkness over us. It's like a hunter relentlessly pursuing its prey. It's like a snake that is waiting to sink its teeth and its venom into us. That we would die. Death is the great danger. It is the greatest danger facing humanity. And Jesus says, whoever obeys my word will never see death. He is claiming that it is possible for us to escape, to be safe from that greatest of all enemies. What what does he mean? Well, let's back up a little bit. Let's get a run up at this phrase. Let's see what's happened to see why Jesus says this. So let's go back up to verse 48 and see what's going on. The Jews, the, those, the, the religious leaders, the crowd that he's talking to, they say to him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Now, at this point, they've really sort of, this, this debate, this argument, this controversy has been going on for several chapters, and they've sort of lost it by now. They're just throwing random insults at him. Aren't we right in saying you're demon-possessed and a Samaritan? Well, no, not really on either, on either count, actually. But what's happening now is they're desperately trying to find a way to wriggle out of the stunning conclusions that Jesus is saying. And to be honest, we will do anything. Human beings will do anything to avoid being confronted by the reality of who Jesus is. Oh, he's just demon-possessed. He's a Samaritan. He's a half-breed. He's a, a muggle. He's not real. You know, he's kind of a born... A, not a muggle. That was something else. He's a... You know, he's, he's not... He's not authentic. He's not genuine. And you hear that still today, don't you? I don't even think Jesus probably ever existed. Oh, we don't, he's some old bloke from history. Why would we care about him? We'll do anything. Not rational arguments, just anything that can just kind of write him off. But look how calmly Jesus responds. I am not possessed by a demon. Should we clear that up? He answers clearly and calmly. doesn't descend to their level of debate. But now look what he says. I honor my father and you dishonor me. Jesus says, you want to know who I truly am? You want to get to grips? You need to understand, I've not come to make a name for myself. I've not come to build a crowd and seek applause. Jesus says, I've come to honor my father. My eyes are not on you. I don't need your verdict. I don't care what you think of me. All I care is that I would honor my Father. That is God in heaven. Jesus says, he's my Father, and I want to honor him. And then he looks at the crowd, and he says, and you dishonor me. There's a problem here, right? If God is honoring, if Jesus is honoring the Father and the crowd are dishonoring Jesus, then the crowd is out of step with God himself. Which is what Jesus says again in verse 50. uh, 50. Look at it. I'm not seeking glory for myself. That's not my aim. To be honest, look, if Jesus had wanted glory for himself, he really could have done better than he managed. He had some serious skills. He had some serious power. He could have built a massive following. 
He could have lived the greatest, the richest, the most luxurious of lives, but he didn't seek glory for himself. That's not what he came to do. But then he says, God his Father is seeking his glory. God the Father does want people to glorify Jesus. So you've got this problem that the crowd is out of step with God because they disagree about Jesus. God says, this is my son, glorify him. The crowd says, he's probably a Samaritan, he's probably demon-possessed. That clash between God and the crowd is a big problem. And it's a problem because of what Jesus says at the end of verse 50. He is the judge. Ultimately, when all is said and done, God is the judge. So work this through. Jesus is saying, you have set yourself against God who is the judge. That's a dangerous position to be in. You place yourself under the judge's disapproval and punishment. Because you do not recognize who Jesus is. This is the key issue in all of human history. The key issue is not how good you've been or how much money you've given to charity or how many old ladies you've helped across the road. The key issue is what do you make of Jesus? The Father says, he's my son and you must glorify him. If you say anything other than that, you put yourself against God. And yet the reality is all too often I treat Jesus like he's unimportant. I act as if Jesus doesn't matter and therefore I set myself against God and therefore Death is a problem because the judge passes his sentence of death on me. But then Jesus says, verse 51, Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. This is the whole reason Jesus came. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. To save it from what? To save it from death. You see, God and the crowd are on this collision course, but God in his love sent his son to save the crowd, not to condemn the crowd. What a God. And Jesus says, it all hangs on me. Now we may say, well, hang on a second, because uh, we still die. Jesus isn't doing a very good job of people not seeing death. Well, just a couple of pages later, he'll explain this. Jesus knows exactly what he's talking about. In uh, John chapter 11, which we'll get to in a few months' time, um, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Right? Here's the deal. It is possible to die and still live. That's a mind-blowing truth you need to get your head around. Jesus says, you will live even though you die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So here is an old person, who, any person, let's call them old. Here's an old person who loves Jesus. And they die. But they're not dead. Because they live. Because they will never see death. Because what Jesus has done is he has taken away the punishment, the sting of death. Okay, look, um, we've got to get this clear. So imagine that there was a snake in here poisonous snake, but we'd removed its fangs and its venom. 
Do you see, it might still be a scary snake. And it might even still kind of bite you. But all it can do is give you a kiss. And give you a little suck. <laughs> because its sting has gone. Its poison has gone. There's, n- there's no power left. It can't hurt you anymore. It might still be scary. And you might even go, ah! But it can't hurt you anymore. And so it is, the Bible says, with death itself. Death is a punishment from God that we deserve. But Jesus came and he took the sting of death away. Because he took that punishment on himself. So now death, physical death, no longer has any power. It no longer has any sting. Which is why the Bible can say, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O grave, is your sting? Where's it gone? You have no power anymore. You've got to understand this. Death is so radically different if you know Jesus. Or, let's put it in the language of here, whoever obeys my word. That is not obeys my word as in keeps all my rules. It is obeys my word as in trust me. I can save you. In the same way that if you're in a big tower and and the tower's on um, fire and there's a fireman at the bottom with a a big net thing. I don't think they really do this. Uh, It's probably only in cartoons, but let's go with it. There's a big net and you're in the building and they say jump. To obey their word means to say, I'm going to trust what you say, that you can save me from death. And you jump out the building and are saved. Jesus, as it were, says, you are in danger of death, but I came so that you could be saved. Jump. Trust me. Trust that I'm the one who's able to take your death. Now, you may say, why does, oh, man, why does all this matter? Well, it matters Because we live in a world where we are obsessed with being safe. Being safe really matters to us, doesn't it? I think we live at a time when we are more safe than ever. It's a huge industry. If you can find a danger, you will also find people inventing a way to keep you safe from it. So we have safety Goggles and safety pins and safety nets and safety razors. Anything that might cause you any harm has been made safe. There's a table. It's got a sharp corner. That might cause damage. So I'm going to put a little plastic thing on the edge of the corner to keep you safe. There we go. Now my little one is safe. (gasps) But my little one might swallow the plastic thing off the corner and choke. So I'm going to make a hole in the plastic thing to make it safe. Now I've been kept safe from the thing that was keeping me safe from the danger of the corner. And we're in this madness of a world where we're desperate to be kept safe. Anything that will keep us safe. Safety is big business. We love to vaccinate ourselves from danger. So we take out insurance to vaccinate ourselves against economic downturn. And we take medicines to vaccinate ourselves against medical killers. And then we build a strong front door to vaccinate ourselves from the danger of robbers who might come and steal our stuff. And all of that because we live in a world of death. 
We live in a world where people get harmed. We live in a world where it's not safe. And so we're desperate to find safety. And we need safety. And we're obsessed by safety. And I want to say that in one sense that's okay. But there are two big dangers with it. Two problems with an obsession for personal safety. The first problem is that you end up putting your safety in the wrong place. You think that there's stuff in this world that can keep you safe. We put our confidence in our resources, and you were never designed to live that way. So we put our confidence in how much money we've got in the bank. Oh, I feel safe now because I've got this chunk of money. We put our confidence in the strength of our front door. And if we don't feel safe, we just get another lock and put another lock on it. And if, we don't, if that doesn't help, then we just get another door. We put more and more stuff until we feel safe. And we're putting our confidence in ourselves. And there's a second reason that this desire for safety is harmful. It's because it prevents us from acting in love towards one another. You see, if I am obsessed with my personal safety, I find it very, very difficult to risk anything for you. I might help you as long as I'm safe, but my safety comes first. You know the thing on the airplane where they do the, um, that, the thingy, the safety demonstration, they, um, and they, they say the thing about the oxygen mask, and they say, if the oxygen mask comes down, make sure you put yours on first before you help anyone else. And we take that advice very seriously. And in some ways, that's very good advice. Except here's the, I think this is what we do. We don't just put the oxygen mask on. We make sure it's really comfortable. We spend half an hour adjusting it. Oh, my nose is rubbing. Sore on my nose. I'm going to adjust that, get it comfortable. And all the while, there are people around us dying who need our help. But we're so obsessed with our personal safety that we can't see the danger that other people are in. And that's a problem. And what Jesus speaks of in that first statement, whoever obeys my word will never see death, is he speaks of a safety beyond anything you could ever imagine. You are safe. You are already safe. Death has nothing on you. If you have placed your confidence in Jesus, you are absolutely and completely and utterly safe. I want to suggest that if we really believe that, it would radically change our lives. It would radically change how much risk we were willing to go through. There's been lots of talk at the moment, hasn't there, about safety and risk and looking after yourself and being kind and careful of yourself. And I want to say, let's be careful that we don't become obsessed with our own personal safety. For many years, I I read um, an account this week of how the Christians responded to a, a pandemic, an outbreak of a deadly disease in the early church history in Rome. A dreadful, dreadful disease killed millions, thousands and thousands of people, probably very much like an Ebola-type disease. And all the people who could escaped from the city because they wanted to keep themselves safe. But this is what one of the Christians wrote about the church. He writes, Most of our Christian brothers and sisters show unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only 
of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with this disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their place. You hear what it said? That's radical, right? Why would they do that? They would only do that if they were so profoundly confident that they were already safe. We're already safe. We know Christ. We already know him. Whoever obeys my word will never see death. Here was a bunch of Christians who actually believed that was true and it radically changed how they lived their lives. To the point where they were willing to die in order to serve those who were suffering. And many historians think that this was one of the key reasons why Christianity took such strong hold in the Roman Empire. Because there were Christians willing to die as they cared for their, those who were suffering. Do you find that challenging? I know I do. And it challenges us because we live in a culture where we are always being told, your safety, your safety, your safety is what matters. It's not always the case. What about a risk? What about being willing to face danger in order that we might love others? I think all too often our love of others comes from a place where we feel safe and secure. Now, I get it. We may say, well, this is a different time, and, 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 I, and, and I'm not talking about being reckless. Please hear me. I'm not talking about being reckless. I'm just talking about not being obsessed with our personal safety. And I've heard a lot of that in response to this pandemic. Now, it's not quite as simple as we might think. <laughs> because, of course, at both ends of how we respond to the pandemic, there is the potential for a self-serving personal focus. At this end, there is the, I need to be safe. I need to keep myself safe from harm. I need to not put myself in any danger. And therefore, we're going to be completely isolated from everybody. That's one end. That's a danger. At the other end, there is that, well, I don't want my personal freedom to be restricted. How dare they tell me what I can and can't do? That's also an obsession with personal freedom and safety. Actually, what there needs to be is an active sense of love. How do I love best? You know what? Perhaps the most loving thing to do is to stay isolated. Perhaps the most loving thing to do is to listen to the government and to obey what they say. Perhaps that is the way that we love one another. But we do it because we love each other, not because we're afraid. We do it because we want to show kindness and love to the weak and those most in danger. But perhaps sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to come to church and to gather and you think well, it feels a bit risky, but, but there's love in being here to love each other and to show, you see, I'm, I'm challenging our motives. It's not about exactly what we do. It's saying if Jesus has taken death for us, if there's no sting left in death, then we are free to love, radically to love. 
And all of this hangs on the second big statement. Let's have a look at the second big statement. The first one, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Here's the second one. Jesus says, very truly, before Abraham was born, I am. You see, who does, how can Jesus go around saying, don't worry, I've taken death for you, you're safe. He can say it because of who he is. Before Abraham was born, I am. Right, let's go through the paragraph. Let's see how he gets to that. Let's see why he says that. And let's watch this argument unfold. Uh, once he says that you'll never see death, verse 52, they now say, well, we know you're demon-possessed now. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think they are? This is, <laughs> this is them basically going, look, all of the greatest people in our faith, they're all dead, all of them. Abraham, prophets, all of them. Death is kind of, that was their, their, that's it. And now you rock up and you say you'll never see death. Are you saying you're greater than Abraham? Don't you think John, as he wrote that, must have had a little smile on his face? Come on, don't you think? Are you saying that you're greater than Abraham? Yes, maybe. That may be what's happening. <laughs> Who do you think you are? Who on earth do you think you are, Jesus? Jesus replies, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Jesus says, I don't have to prove myself to you. I don't have to impress you. It's my Father. You see how he's so committed to this. He will not let his heart be drawn to impress the crowd. He says, I just want to glorify my Father. And the Father's going to glorify him. He has this beautiful relationship with his Father. It's so stunning. He says, verse 55, you do not know him. I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his word. Jesus says, I know. He's my father. I've been telling you this for the last four chapters. Wake up. Do you still not get who I am? Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham, Abraham, this, this descendant who you so honor and respect, he was excited about me. He rejoiced at seeing my day. Abraham, God made promises to Abraham. And as Abraham believed those promises, he was actually believing in Jesus, he was excited about the day when God would fulfill his promises through Jesus. Abraham was excited about Jesus. And at this point, verse 57, they get very confused. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you've seen Abraham. Can we just check which Abraham we're talking about, Jesus? Because you're only 50. We're not talking about Abraham down the road. You know, Abraham Jones, uh, who's, you know, been around for a little while. We're talking about our, like, thousand years ago, Abraham. Are we clear on this, Jesus? And so Jesus spells it out as clearly as he can. Verse 58. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. That's how you get to that statement. 
They want to know who he is. Who are you? Who do you think you are? You greater than Abraham? Before Abraham was, I am. I mean, it's not even good grammar, is it? Before Abraham was, I am. This is what are you doing? Before Abraham was, I was. That, that makes sense. I mean, it doesn't make sense entirely, but that would be good grammar. Jesus, why, what are you doing? Well, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and so did the people listening to him. When Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am, Jesus takes a name. The name that God revealed himself as. When God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush back in the days of the Exodus, Moses says, what is your name? And God says, I am. It's God's name. Now, why would God call himself I am? What a weird name to call yourself. Why why I am? Well, it's a name that speaks of the very nature of God. It speaks of the character of God. We could do a whole, like, huge doctrine lecture here, but we're not going to. I just need to show you a couple of things. The name I am speaks of God's eternal existence. He is the one who is. He exists. He's always existed. I am eternally existent. The one who has no beginning and has no end. The story of my life is I was not. I am. That's it, really. And then probably I won't be, but I'll be with Jesus. That'd be great. You see, I have a beginning. There was a time when I did not exist, when I was not, I am. But here is the God who has no beginning. He's eternally pre-existent. He pre-exists everything. He's the one who is supreme essence. I am the one who has life in himself, the one who's never not had life. It's brain-stretching and it's mind-bending, but that's who our God is. And because he's I am, he's the God who doesn't change. He's the unchanging God. I am who I am. He doesn't grow. He doesn't get older. He doesn't get faster or slower or fatter or wiser. He doesn't get anything more. He is always consistent because God cannot become more than he already is because that would mean he isn't fully God now. You see? I am speaks of God as the eternally constant existent one upon whom all other existence depends. It's a name of extraordinary reverence and awe. And then Jesus says, I am. Do you not not see that? Jesus is claiming to be that God, the I am, the eternally pre-existent one. The unchanging one. What a monumental thing for Jesus to claim. But that has been the testimony of John's gospel all the way through. How is it that Jesus is able to save us from death? How is it that Jesus is able to defeat death on our behalf and bring us life? Because he is I am. And the great I am, the unchanging eternal God, has become a man. So that now they can measure him. He must be about 50 years old. They're measuring him. 
<laughs> what a crazy thing. He's the eternal I am. And yet he's about 50 years old because this is the message of the gospel. Jesus is the God, the eternal God who has become fully man. And now God and man together in one person. Honestly, the church is discussed and debated and worked and fought over this because this is so central to what we believe. Jesus is both God and man. And so a man can say, I am. And it's right there in this declaration of who Jesus is that our safety rests. Because who has saved you from death? I am has saved you from death. I, there, there's, there's nothing else like this in all the world. There's no other God that human beings have come up with that comes close to stooping. Eternal God become man. The Word become flesh. Not, nowhere, not seen anywhere else. And also that He could save us. They fully understand what He means. Verse 59, they pick up their stones to stone him because they assume he's blaspheming. They know what he means. There's no, there's no confusion. Oh, I wonder what he means. They know what he means. He's claiming to be God. And so they want to kill him, but he just slips away. Not yet, he says. Yes, my death will come, but not yet. And so here are these two statements that encapsulate what John wants you to know. Jesus came so that you could be saved from death. Jesus came to be the great I am so that you could be absolutely safe. I wonder. I wonder what difference it would make to our lives. I want to tell you one other story as I finish. Um, many of you will be aware that this month is Black History Month. And um, it's an opportunity for us to, to think and to celebrate some of the people from our church history who God has used from all different nations, and particularly those of a, a black heritage. Now, we should be doing this all the time, not just in Black History Month, but it does give us an opportunity. So I was doing some talking to people and some reading, and uh, someone mentioned to me Perpetua. And I want to tell you the story of Perpetua as we finish. She, was, uh, she grew up in North Africa, in Carthage. North Africa was really the heart of Christianity in the early days. It's where Augustine, great theologian Augustine was. And it spread out from North Africa and all over the place. You see, our roots are not white European. Right? We've got to keep remembering that. And in Carthage, North Africa, lived a young woman. She was 22 years old, and she recently turned to follow Jesus. She was waiting to be baptized. But before she could be baptized, the Romans came and arrested her and a bunch of her friends. This was in about 200 AD, something like that. Because the Romans were keen to stamp out this revolutionary sect of Christianity. And so she was imprisoned. Her father um, immediately came to the prison. He was not a Christian. And he saw an easy way for Perpetua to save herself. He simply said to her, look, just deny that you're a Christian. That's all you've got to do, then you'll be safe. And this is what she said. Father, do you see this vase here? Could it be called by any other name than what it is? 
No, he replied. Well, neither can I be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. She says, this is who I am. I belong to Christ. She was then baptized in prison. She was strengthened and encouraged. She had a very young son, a little baby. But at her trial, she refused to enter into uh, emperor worship. And so on the 7th of March, 203 AD, she was led to the amphitheater with other Christians to face their death. She was, um, there was a bunch of them, but there was another woman called Felicitas, and they, they died together. The two young mothers were stripped naked and given nets to wear. Then they were thrown into the arena with a wild bull. Yet while the animal trampled and kicked at them, Perpetua seemed unconcerned with the brutal animal, carefully binding up her disheveled hair in order to meet death with as much dignity as possible. After they'd been brutalized by the animals, the surviving Christians were gathered together. They gave each other the kiss of peace one last time. Then each of them was stabbed with a sword. But Perpetua, stabbed between the ribs by a novice gladiator whose hand was shaking, did not die. She cried out loudly. She grabbed the gladiator's sword. She placed the blade to her own throat. And in this way, she embraced her death. She was 22. Why would she do that? She did it because she was convinced that she was already safe. She did it because she was convinced that Jesus, when he said, whoever obeys my word will not see death, she believed him. And she trusted it. And I read these stories. I tell you these stories because this is our history. This is how the church grew. This is what it cost. This is how people believed in Jesus. This is what changed the world. People who so believed what Jesus said was true, that Jesus is the great I am who saves us from death. They so believed it was true that they were willing to die for him. And I say it because we need to be inspired by this. We need to be challenged by this. We need to be encouraged by this. Not to be people who get sucked into a safety-obsessed culture, but instead be a people who take risks, not reckless, but who take risks for Jesus and who say, I trust you, Jesus, I trust you. You've got my death. You're the one who's the living one, and I believe you. I wonder if you're willing. I wonder if you know that you're safe. So here's my challenge as we finish. Why not do one thing this week that's risky? I'm not talking, we're not being called at this moment to make some massive, we're not being called to be thrown to the lions. That's not what we're being called to. But the danger is that we just settle into an easy Christianity. And I want to challenge us to say, what could we do this week that would be a risk? That may be to do with money. It may be a financial risk. You say, I'm going to give this money, and it feels risky. It places me perhaps in a slightly dangerous position. It's going to cost me, but Jesus, I'm safe. I can trust you. You're the great I am, so I'm going to give. It may be taking the risk of saying something to someone at work about the fact that you're a Christian. 
And as we begin to take little risks, and as we begin to embrace risk and stop playing it safe, as we begin to go that way, we will discover Jesus using us. How did the gospel spread? As God's people took risks and trusted him. And as we take risks, we'll see God use us. And who knows, he may call us to take bigger and bigger risks, and that we might be used by him. Now, I know that some people sitting here will be fired up by this because that's your character. You'll be like, yeah, great. Where do I go? Where do I sign up? Some of you will respond like, most of you won't. Most of you think, I, I, I can't. And if that's you, that's okay. I, I want to encourage you this week to simply pray that God would help you. Are you willing to, to ask him, Lord Jesus, I, I want to take a risk for you, but I, I don't know if I can. Please, would you help me? Are you willing to ask that? Because perhaps even this week, Jesus might ask you to do something that you think, I can't do that. And then you'll remember this and go, no, because whoever obeys my word will never see death. And Jesus is the living I am. And he'll give us the strength to do it. I don't know what God is calling you to. But let's be those who live in this confidence of what Jesus has done for us. I'm going to lead us in prayer. And then we're going to worship God together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these two extraordinary statements. We thank you that because of Jesus, we will never see death. That's amazing. That even when we physically die, it, there's no sting there. We will live. And we thank you that that is true because Jesus is the great I am. The eternal, infinite, uncreated Son of God. And we pray that we place all our confidence here. Lord, please help us. You know how weak we are. You know how much we love our safety. Lord, help us to be risk takers, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.